So, uh, good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Fabio Barry. This session was to have been hosted by Philip Hewitt-Jabour, and unhappily, it is now being held in his memory instead. Uh, I, of course, cannot fill Philip's shoes, but we did share a passion for coloured stones and their history, and he was quite vocal in his support for my own research. More importantly, he encouraged Adriana and Silvia in devising and making the two films we're about to see. And in fact, in the first one, you can actually just see his hands turning the leaves uh, of an album of marble specimens. Now, these two films are wonderful films, are quite different. The first is a beginner's introduction to ancient marbles commissioned by the Capitoline Museums and the Santarelli Foundation. And it will be screened in the museum on a continuous loop. Now, uh, with my voice over in English, that still requires a little fine tuning because it features some feats of respiration. <laughs> the second film is more focused. It is an interview with uh, Raniero Gnoli, the granddaddy of modern marble studies, now in his mid-90s. His highly influential book, Marmora Romana, originally published in 1971, remains the first port of call for any serious scholar of ancient marbles. Although it still comes as a bit of a surprise to realize that marbles were a sideline for this professor of Sanskrit. Now, this documentary is the first in a series that will be hosted on the site of the Corsi Collection of Decorative Stones at the Oxford University Museum of Natural History. Now, as the two people who conceived, wrote, and directed the films, let me present Drs. Adriano Aimonino and Silvia Davoli. There's no time to go through all their publications, curated <laughs> exhibitions, and awards. Let me just say that Dr. Aimonino teaches at the University of Buckingham, that his book, Enlightened Eclecticism, came out with Yale University Press in 2021, and at the moment he's battling to finish a revised edition of Francis Haskell and Nicholas Penny's Taste in the Antique, all three volumes of which uh, I think are coming out at the end of this year. Is that right? Dr. Silvia Davoli, on the other hand, is a curator at Strawberry Hill, where she's been avidly researching the Horace Walpole collection for some years, and is also a research associate at Oxford University. Both Dr. Aimonino and Dr. Davoli are also associate editors of the Journal of the History of Collections. Now, what I do want to say, and I will conclude with this, uh, is that these two films were created in the very difficult conditions and with all the unforeseeable problems of the recent COVID crisis, and that Silvia and Adriano had first the initiative and vision to begin the project, then the fortitude and resilience to complete it. And I'm sure Philip would have been proud of the results and very excited. They also have virtual yards of unused footage, so I personally hope they will go on to make full-length documentaries, beginning with an extended one 
on Raniero Gnoli. Okay, over to you. Thank you, Fabio. I'll be very brief, just to say that the first documentary was uh, commissioned by the Santarelli Foundation for a new room in the Capitoline Museum in Rome. And if you go there, this is the wonderful catalog. And Vittoria Bonifati is from the Santarelli Foundation, is in the audience. And this room will be there at the Capitoline Museum for 10 years. And the screening of the documentary will be on a loop for 10 years. A long time. And the second one is more uh, a work of love, in a way, of an extraordinary character, as you will see, is much more esoteric, in a way. So the first one is very didactic, and the second one is very esoteric, and this was uh, realized thanks to the support of Alessandra Di Castro and Carlo Orsi, who are here with us, and you will see in the uh, final titles, basically. All the people who actually were involved in both documentaries. So this is everything I wanted to say. And there's a caveat. The, the wonderful voice of Fabio in English works wonderfully well, but it needs, we need to extend the documentary <laughs> for 10 seconds, maybe. But you can you say that see. the original is with my voice. And the original is with Silvia's voice. And you said what I was meant to say, Sorry. so I don't know what to say now. No, I wanted just to say that uh, it was really, I mean, I think the, the visit to Raniero Gnoli, his place, uh, Castel Giuliano, really inspired us and uh, is such a, an eccentric and uh, a fantastic figure, I have to say, with this double uh, kind of, uh, I mean, this very rich life, uh, Sanskrit and marbles that are two different kind of grammars in a sense. And you, I, I hope you will, uh, you will get this message from, uh, from this interview. So thank you. I mean, I think it's, uh, that's all and uh, that we can, uh, we can start. start the protection. Thank you. Coloured stones have been at the heart of Western art and architecture for over two millennia. Already used by the Egyptians and in the palaces of Hellenistic rulers, it was only with the expansion of the Roman Empire beginning in the late Republic that their use spread throughout the Mediterranean basin. The historian Suetonius tells us that the Emperor Augustus boasted he had found a Rome built in brick but left his citizens a city made of marble. Indeed, it was because the Romans imported colored marbles from every quarter of the Mediterranean that their capital, Rome, which had previously been built from only brick or local rock, transformed into a monumental metropolis clad in exotic stones, which materialized the territorial expanse of their empire, its universal character and power. Over 500 years, reaching a peak under the Emperor Trajan in the second century AD, Rome nourished an artificial geology. 
coloured marbles covered the floors and walls of temples, baths, the forums, palaces and private homes, much of it in the technique called opus sectile, whereby thin slabs were cut to make intricate inlays, both geometrical and figurative. Coloured marbles also became 3D in the forests of columns that subsequently populated the churches and monuments of Rome. certain extent, Mark, no. to a certain extent, because, uh, uh, for instance, I met this, this very famous petrographer in Venice called Lorenzo Lazzarini, who's probably the most expert in terms of actual stones and their provenance in the world, and he told me that some of the stones catalogued in Gnoli or in Borghini are incorrect because of the... Ah, thank you. Because of the new developments of, uh, of you know, the science of petrography in the last 20 years, so there, there is a need for a new Borghini in English. The amazing thing, these are details actually, of these, um, many of the samples that you saw in the second documentary come from the Gnoli collection and now are part of the Santarelli collection and are at the Capitoline Museum. If you turn them on their back, very often there are names in Sanskrit because Gnoli actually wrote the, the place where he found them in Sanskrit so that no one could actually understand where he actually got them from. <laughs> but also I think that the combination of, I mean, names, sources, typologies is part of this, is an ongoing process. It started with Corsi and, and then Gnoli and nowadays we have... And then again there is this distance between science and the arts, and I think this was for a long time a problem. I mean, it's uh, the fact that often Laz people like Lazzarini, maybe they are not in touch with uh, uh, museums, uh, and, uh, and this is why also there is a, a sometimes incoherence in, uh, in all the, the researches run in parallel. In any case, it's a fascinating uh, um, research. As Fabio knows very well. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I can't really add to anything to what you've just said. I mean, there are, there, are, there are two sets of names, really. Those invented more recently, those which are original names. Uh, the provenance of the stones isn't always clear. There are many, as you said, you know. Uh, I've actually been in uh, uh, the uh, the um, San Marco in Venice many, many years ago with Lorenzo Lazzarini, who pointed at two small columns and said, what, I can't remember what they were. They were some sort of granite. And, uh, um, he said, what are these? No, these are clearly the same stone. And I said, oh, yes, absolutely. It's, couldn't be clearer. And he said, no, they're not. <laughs> and, you know, and, um, and then encouraged me to look at them on a level I couldn't achieve, you know, virtually microscopic. There was, just, there was something just slightly different about the grain uh, of these granites. Uh, and that's, that's a very young science. I mean, that's only me going... 20 odd years, and it's uh, um, provenance is a. Where the materials in those two, two columns? Were they from quarries that were in the same geographical zone? Which two columns? The ones you're just referring to. 
I, I can't remember where they were from at all. Um, no, they weren't. They weren't particularly near each other. They were probably two or three hundred miles apart, I think. Um, not just different parts of the same quarry. two rooms, actually, there's uh, a, a lithotech at the Capitolai Museums. There are two rooms. In one room, you have the marble samples arranged geographically. In the other room, you have the screen with the documentary, some lithotechs called collection of marble samples, and the tools of uh, one of the great uh, stone cutters, Scalpellini, that he mentioned, Agnoli mentioned, Fiorentini. So they're all there in catalogue from the drill to the sows, et cetera, et cetera. With the distinguishing what would have been used against what stone. Yeah, and also here in the catalogue, if you're interested, there is actually a chapter by the son of Fiorentini, because the old Fiorentini died a few years ago, explaining more or less actually how these tools were used in the cutting, polishing, and roughing out of all these stones according to their hardness, because porphyry is a nightmare, as you know very well, while actually others are much, much more tender. Yes. Hi. Yes. <laughs> In what period? I shall repeat the question probably. So uh, the question is, uh, the quarries were part of a business. Who owned the quarries? What was basically the business model behind the Roman quarries? I think there's a straightforward answer to that. A lot of the quarries were imperial properties. But it seems to, I mean, this isn't something I've researched myself because... It's a side to marble history that hasn't engrossed me as much as marble symbolism. But um, they, they were in, uh, some of them were imperial properties, but there are instances, so there are instances, I can't remember who it is, is it Antoninus Pius or somebody like that, who walks into somebody's house and says, yeah, how the hell did you get these porphyry columns? It's, um, so it's clear that there were, you, know, you shouldn't have been able to access them, but they were clearly private quarries as well. And they were was it the equivalent of three legions of men or something working the quarries in the in the empire. So it was a, but paid workers and not slaves. Mm. It was an enormous business. In terms of sheer you know mobility and mass is one of the most important actually economic factor within the life of the Roman Empire in terms of trade and movement of 
and logistically is one of the largest operations ever set up, set up by the Roman Empire in that sense. And one, I mean, the initial intention, I mean, then we, we, we got to know Ranier Rognoli, so the idea was transformed, but the initial intention was really to, to try to, to produce a documentary about uh, the quarries and the long life of these marbles coming to Rome and then being recycled. And, and then during the 18th century, you could find them in Scotland. I mean, we had these kind of saga in mind, but obviously it's a much more expensive project. But uh, it would be beautiful to, to be able to, to actually to film also the quarries uh, in, uh, <laughs> near the Mar, Mar Rosa. I mean, I think it was Philip dream. I mean, the idea, these quarries nowadays are not recognized as archaeological uh, sites. So I think Philip's objective was very much to, to transform, for instance, the Mont, Monza Porfirite in a, in a place to, to be visited by tourists or people interested. And it's, I mean, it's, it's true, there are amazing places. And um, so, yes, the idea was to, 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 to give this sense of uh, uh, the empire expanding and Rome then eventually gathering all these marbles and again expanding in the, in the following centuries. It's a fascinating material uh, history. I mean, it's, uh, it's really an amazing history, I think. Also because I think very few people walking around English country houses or British country houses in general, when you see all these tabletops with marble samples, right? Even myself, actually, at the beginning, I didn't realize that actually they are not, you know, marble quarried in the 18th century. These were marbles that actually were quarried by the stone cutters of Rome in Rome. But these marbles had been taken to Rome 1,500 years before. So it's an incredible history of inventing a new geology and quarrying an artificial geology to cater an international market. So it's like the world coming to Rome and then expanding again outside Rome millennia after the original material was imported. So the idea is to really do a much larger documentary with different means, both economic <laughs> and in terms of cameras, etc., etc., where actually you trace this, this story like a piece of porphyry from the quarries to Rome and then to Scotland. They reused the soil of Rome, mostly. There's still today, if you go to Rome, where the great emporium, where these marbles, these gigantic blocks of marbles would arrive, which is called Marmorata. So there's still Via Marmorata because that was one of the most important places where the, the stone cutters of Rome would, would dig, trying to find. Another one is, is close to Piazza Navona etc etc but the vast majority no quarries were reopened the original roman quarries then the grand dukes of florence for instance from cosimo onwards tried to actually mine and quarry some of the quarries in the in the nel granducato di toscana 
but in order to imitate Sardinia. and in Sardinia, etc., etc. But the old quarries were basically, first of all, were very far away, right? Where in, you know, in the location most very often was not known. They were very often in Ottoman uh, territory or Muslim territory. So it's really Rome that provides the raw material for the erection of chapels, tabletops, busts, etc., etc. Uh, Vast yes. quantity, yeah. Yeah, but consider that most of what you see is veneered. Yeah. Only rarely you have a solid, what Fabio mentioned the other day, Pietra Viva, no? Pietra Viva. Pietra Viva. So solid think about blocks. Villa Adriana. I mean, these places yes, yeah. were covered with Marble. marbles. And for us today, it's difficult to, to visualize, I think, to imagine what they look like. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. Uh, yes. For sure. It's fascinating. But all, definitely, definitely. And whenever a new province was conquered, clearly a new influx of marble from the province started to arrive in order to signify, in a way, like in the Pantheon, which has marbles from Egypt, from Greece, from many other places, actually from Turkey, so Asia Minor. Tom. Adriana, Silvia, just since you mentioned that you'd like to make a, a longer documentary with more cameras, Fabio mentioned you have dreams, of course. Can you say a little bit about some of the decision-making you had to take in actually filming stone samples? In you getting that footage, sometimes they use tracking shots, sometimes they frame stones, maybe still photographs. I just wonder if you said that Well, the short answer is whatever was better. <laughs> no, so sometimes we had to compromise. Some of these marbles are not ancient. The lion that you see in porphyry. And also imagine, ancient. I mean, for instance, with Raniero Gnoli, it's, it's, it was fantastic and very generous with his time, and, but he's a, a very old person. So uh, ideally, uh, we would have needed like one week uh, uh, wandering around, but obviously Raniero was, I mean, he, he needed, he could talk only for a certain amount of time and then he had to rest and, uh, and then also we didn't want to be too invasive. So it was, I mean, all in all it was a difficult, uh, as Adriano was saying, we, we, we needed to, to, to obviously to make many compromises and find the best solution. And, uh, but we hope we manage to, to convey the sense, the, the richness and, uh, and the beauty of, uh, of, um, of these stones and, um, and mm -hmm. also the atmosphere, the atmosphere of uh, Raniero's um, palazzo. What is amazing is he made all of these. Yes, probably we didn't manage to convey the fact, although it's, we were forced to put this you know, text at the beginning, which of course is a decision that we would like to avoid, but it's inevitable. But probably we didn't manage to convey the fact that actually everything you see in, in his house was made by his own hands, I, apart from the paintings, of course. I didn't realize it the first time we entered, and I thought that I was in presence of 17th century. Yeah, he has a laboratory uh, under the, the where actually there's a jungle of, you know, 
ebony uh, pair wood uh, you know bridge uh, everything that he cuts and then he has all the tools and everything uh, so it's, it's funny that at the Getty Museum they have all uh, he made all these framed uh, stones and in the database of the Getty Museum it's like uh, unknown uh, uh, maker uh, Rome, 17th century. 17th century, 18th century, and when I saw it, and I, did you? Yeah, it's, a, my, it's my own creation, inspired by the Strozzi by the volume. Strozzi. So there is a story behind, and the Getty clearly they they didn't know about it, and um, so it's, changed, it's just it's, it's just a funny story. But the we we should say that the wonderful actually uh, album that you see in the first documentary being you know pages being turned by Philip is the famous Strozzi album, Amazing which is owned by was owned by Philip and Gnoli made those uh, roundels and there's in yes what she just said so I'm repeating what she just said typical sorry about this <laughs> but uh, the other thing which is amazing is that we have eight hours of film on him but it's only 20 minutes you can really extract but there are stories he used to take marble from Egypt to Gujarat because in Gujarat he knew the stone cutters who could still create vases and everything with the old marbles and then take these uh, vases to Rome. So a triangulation of which actually brings together his world in a way. And he would help them in cutting the stone according to how he liked it. So it's, there's a lot that still can be actually shown but uh, 20 minutes is already enough. But there's an enormous amount of material. No, see, if we can. No, I was thinking another nice story that didn't. I mean, we couldn't. It's the fact that uh, when he decided to to work on the marbles, uh, his 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 neighbor in Rome was Mario Prats, and was Mario. It's, it's from conversation with Mario Prats that started this idea of uh, uh, making uh, a book on uh, on uh, ancient marbles, and then Raniero told us about. Um, also the way, because Mario Prats at the time was working on other things, but he had this very nice and very well-organized way to, to, to select and to, to form his own archive with all these uh, uh, pieces of papers, uh, etc. So the, clearly, Gnoli was inspired by Mario in this, uh, in this uh, effort to reconstruct the, the drama of the marbles. I mean, I found that was a very interesting um, story. Unfortunately, the way Raniero told us the story was impossible to cut and remount and, and, and convey. To compromise. Uh, so we had to, to renounce to this uh, information that I think is really interesting and significant. One final thing, and then I think we should go because it's 1.30. The other thing that he told us, it clearly says, I work by obsessions. Clearly he's a borderline autistic <laughs> personality. Between the age of 12 and the age of 18, he studied the whole Greek literature. He used to skip school and go to the Casanatense to read uh, Nonno di Panopoli, so late antique Greek poetry, which had not been published until then. So when he arrived in, uh, when he enrolled at the university and the professor says, okay, what are you, what subject would you like to study? Greek poetry and he said yes but which authors and he said all of them and said, so the professor understood that actually he knew all the Greek poetry and said why don't you study Sanskrit <laughs> as an alternative so
So that's how he did. There he says, I don't remember how I got into Sanskrit, but actually there is a reason because he had covered, not to mention the Latin literature, which of course, but so he's a philologist. A linguist. Really a philologist. So he actually treats stones and words in the same way. You know? A good point to end. So um, if we could just, I don't know, offer up some more applause for these wonderful movies just made. <laughs> okay. so